You're listening to Red Nation Online. You're listening to the Paul James on Soccer Podcast. Commentary and analysis by Paul James, former Canadian soccer player, television analyst, coach, and member of the Canadian Soccer Hall of Fame. Well, here we are with episode 10 of the Paul James on Soccer podcast, and in a couple of ways, it was a pretty bizarre week in Canadian soccer. In one of the strangest soccer evenings I've been a part of, a rain and lightning storm caused the second leg of the Canadian Championship final to be aborted after just under 60 minutes of official play, a goal by the Whitecaps, and a couple of delays in the match. Let's start off by getting your thoughts on how the two teams performed before the game was called, Paul. Well, I agree, Steve. It was uh, a strange game. I mean, always round. So it's, um, you know, I'm not sure how relevant, really, for me to go into too much detail about both teams uh, on the night because uh, they don't even show uh, highlights of it, which, um, which makes sense. It was just a strange, strange evening. But the way it worked out, I think that with Vancouver... They certainly uh, uh, took the game by the scruff of the neck at the beginning. I think they had a certain plan to, uh, to you know, high pressure and particularly put uh, Adrian Khan um, under a lot of pressure. And um, lo and behold, he, uh, he makes a mistake. So the Hashley ended up scoring. So, you know, I, I think Vancouver uh, certainly looked uh, solid at starting the game. Toronto came back in it once they were conceded the goal. I thought Eckersley was uh, was decent, but overall it was just a, such a strange game. I mean, um, you know, quite frankly, I've never seen anything like it. I mean, I'm sure there has been there has been other games like that on a professional level around the world, but certainly domestically, that was um, that was quite the experience. So it was it was chaotic. Um, you know, Vancouver in the end, once they got that lead and came out second half, you could see that they were going to uh, try and hold on to that. But, um, you know, I'm sure they'll feel uh, somewhat uh, aggrieved, as uh, I certainly would, uh, would as a coach. But, um, you know, we've just got to move on from that, and they've got to play it again on July 2nd. You have to feel for Teeter Thorson and the Whitecaps in terms of how unfortunate it was that the game had to be called when the team had, had the advantage and were on the verge of their first Canadian championship. Uh, Teeter was negotiating late into the evening to complete the match on Wednesday night. Uh, one idea that has been prominent among Whitecaps supporters has been one which purports that Toronto C should start off the rescheduled match by scoring into their own net in order to return the Whitecaps the goal advantage they lost from the cancellation. What do you make of that idea? <laughs> well, the fact that it's coming from Vancouver Whitecaps fans, uh, you know, doesn't surprise me. I mean, they, you know, I, I think on the one side it just shows how competitive everybody is, and now how meaningful. It is to win the uh, the Canadian Championship. So, I, I, you know, we, we we touched briefly on the game. We wanted to move on from that quickly. But, uh, you know, clearly the game had to be cancelled, in, in my opinion. It, it made the whole thing a little bit farcical. But the game had to be cancelled. When you have lightning like that, uh, the, the field conditions, and it was it was terrible with, with all the rain on it. But it really is about the safety issue. Um, so that was fine. And, and so I understand uh, Tater's uh, perspective. Um, on that and he's you know I thought he handled himself with class I actually thought both coaches after the game handled themselves uh, very very well including Aaron Vinter when he talked about uh, sometimes luck goes with you sometimes it uh, it doesn't 
and uh, you know, and I think Toronto FC before had uh, experienced that earlier in the season. So you know, I thought both of them handled it well. As far as the direct question itself, you know, it's um, it's an interesting one. You know, if they start off the game and uh, and nothing is done, or, or Toronto FC don't come forward, which they don't have to. I mean, uh, business is business. This is uh, professional football, uh, and uh, those it was bad luck for Vancouver, I suppose you could say. Now, good sportsmanship. Where does that come in? Um, you know, I. I would say if Toronto FC go out and they win this game 1-0 and they go through, there's always going to be that question mark uh, and sort of about it being a little bit unfair on Vancouver. Um, you know, But that would be the logical um, uh, way to go about it for, for Toronto FC and Toronto FC supporters would be to uh, say, well, it's too bad, let's just move on. It has been done around the world uh, under different circumstances. I mean, it, it, somewhere in Europe they've, they've actually played they started the game at the 60th minute mark, and I think uh, Ben Knight uh, sort of suggested that. And then also, uh, as the Vancouver Whitecaps uh, say, I think Arsenal did it against Sheffield United in one of their games. Uh, but those are one-off games generally around Europe. This is a two-legged affair. For me, I, I would, I, I would actually suggest if uh, if Aaron Vinter was was uh, was thinking along those lines. And again, I, I want to emphasize, he doesn't have to, and I, I don't think he's going to be looked upon as a, a bad sportsman. I mean, it's just business is business, and football is football, and you have to go with the flow, and, and sometimes things work for you, sometimes they don't. That's the circumstance for Vancouver, as tough as it is for them to, to accept. But, you know, what would make uh, logical sense for me would be for, for Vancouver to have won that game now, 1-0, and it was just a shortened game, but they win 1-0, and to start, like, all, all the marbles, so to speak, are on this particular game. So you start from fresh, the two-legged thing is out of the window, and it's a one-off game. And if it uh, is tied at the end of regulation time, it goes, to, uh, it goes to extra time. That would seem to be, uh, you know, a little bit of in-between where everybody uh, should be happy with that. And, uh, you know, it's still a disadvantage, I suppose, to Vancouver to have to travel in again to Toronto. But... Um, you know, that's the way that it is. And, you know, I, I, I think any other way, you know, to start the game and to actually know that's going to happen. You know, when that happened with Arsenal, uh, Sheffield United, nobody ever knew that was going to happen. So it's sort of, uh, it just makes the whole thing a little bit farcical, in my opinion, if you know it's coming. So um, I would like something to be probably more clear. So it's one or two things, Steve, to, to finish off with that. I would think that that would be um, the, uh, the, the best solution. Uh, or for it to be uh, Toronto is still holds the 1-0 lead and they start the whole thing over again. Playing in the rain late into the night in the Canadian Championship on Wednesday likely took its toll on both Toronto and Vancouver, and both clubs were back in action in the MLS on Saturday. Vancouver played against Eastern Conference superpower the New York Red Bulls and came away with yet another draw at home. While Vancouver is still sitting on a single-league victory, I was impressed by how the Vancouver Whitecaps played, and I think a 1-1 tie was a decent result given the circumstances. What were your impressions of that match? Yeah, I agree. I thought they were uh, very good. And I don't think that uh, by the way they started, that first half was electric. From both teams, to be fair, they're both motivated for different reasons. But um, I, I don't think the uh, midweek uh, fiasco and game affected Vancouver at all. We'll talk about Toronto in a minute. Clearly it did to, uh, with Toronto. So there's a mentality thing right out of the gate on that one. 
But, uh, you know, I thought Vancouver were very, very good. And how they managed to tie that game again, um, you know, it's, uh, it really takes thought about what they have to do to start uh, winning these games. But if you look at their home record, they've won one, lost one, and, uh, and tied five. That's an impressive home, home stand when they only lose one game. It's just those ties again, only worth uh, one point. Is, uh, is the problem, but it can't be indicative of the fact that they're a bad team, a poorly prepared team. It's just, it's just about persistence for them now and some subtleties in how they play, in my opinion. And I have to say this, because I know we talked about it, we're very critical at the beginning of the season with, with, uh, with defending and, and talking about one-on-one defending and then collectively as a group. I, I think Vancouver, based on what I saw yesterday, uh, were, were excellent in the 1v1 department in the defending third. They were really terrific. And, uh, you know, great concentration collectively as a group, a team defending. They were, they were good uh, as well. And so they've sort of got that shift. It's how now that they can create more chances. And I think it's about penetrating into the final third. They need to be more effective that way and get bodies uh, forward and keep the right players back when they don't um, I'm sorry keep players back when they when they have uh, um, numbers forward but have the right players that they keep uh, keep back in other words is that if you if they attack with five or six players when they go forward um, but they leave slow players at the back or their slowest players or somebody that doesn't have real pace I think that's where they can get caught on a counterattack so it's the subtleties now, I think, for, uh, for Tater and Colin Miller to solve. Uh, but the persistence and the character is that, you know, they don't buckle. You know, uh, David uh, Cimento, I, I would muzzle him a little bit if I was the coaches because he, he tends to speak, uh, you know, bordering on, on being down and negative about the situation. But I wouldn't be because uh, they're, again, a first-year franchise that have performed terrifically well. You cannot be a Vancouver supporter. And come out of that game and just say, wow, I wasn't entertained and we've got a decent team. They definitely do. It's just about persistence and solving a problem and keeping the right mentality, which they've done a fantastic job of doing. So um, those are my impressions. You know, it's just uh, too bad. What are the odds? They, they, they give one real, it wasn't even a, a straightforward chance, and it, but the guy still somehow gets it in. It was, um, it was too bad for them. A couple of weeks ago, I asked you about a run of poor performances by Camilo and Eric Hasley, and you mentioned that other teams would have scouted them and figured out how to shut them down after a couple of matches. Do you think the Brazilian and Frenchmen have made the requisite adjustments to again be effective? Yeah, to a certain extent. I mean, you can't, again, it's a bit like the Vancouver team. They're, they're almost a microcosm of that. They, they perform well. I mean, Eric Hasley is a DP player for a reason. I mean, he's, he's effective. You know, even when he's having a hard time or he's marked well, he's still a handful, and uh, you give him half a chance, a sighted goal, and uh, he's going to connect. So, you know, I think that they've, uh, you know, you go up and down in, as, as a player throughout a season that's so long, and, and I think that they've uh, readjusted and done very well. The, the key is, though, is that for Camillo, he plays up front. He's not a prolific goal scorer. Um, I mean, there didn't seem to be anybody outside uh, Eric Hasley. And he's got it, and yet he creates so many chances. But this is what I mean about teams scouting players and, and the thoroughness of the opposition. What they do with Camilio is that you know he's a good player, so they can't really contain him, um, you, know, you know, perfectly. But what they will do is is that they will make sure that they always have him in front of the defenders 
of the opponent who will make sure that he's uh, always in front of him. So they will, if he's running down the wing, they'll they send him inside or push him further back. So he's taking shots from outside the box. They don't let him penetrate in behind, either through runs with the ball or without the ball. And, uh, and that's an effective way of dealing with him. And he doesn't have that extra. If he was just a, a fraction quicker over those first five or, or, or ten yards or had the power to leave players, it would make the world a difference in terms of penetrating that final third. But he can't quite do it. And the opposition sort of uh, see that and, and sort of, uh, I think, handle him well and have adjusted well. But um, for him, it's just about uh, persistence because sooner or later, you know, the goalkeepers are not going to pull off great saves. He's going he's gonna to start scoring a few goals, and maybe it's a bit more about diagonal runs. There's subtleties that the coaches uh, need to solve. Eric Hasley, I think, has been, uh, has been terrific uh, no matter what. Well, Toronto did not do as well as Vancouver in their match on Saturday against the Philadelphia Union. In one of the worst performances in the history of the franchise, Toronto conceded six goals, which is the most an opponent has ever scored against Toronto. What did you make of the match, Paul? Well, it was unbelievable. Like, it was an unbelievable game. I'm trying to think back to that 5-0 game uh, in, uh, in New Jersey with New York uh, and Toronto FC a few years ago. You know, I mean, that was uh, you know, humiliating, that for sure, knowing what was on the line and playing bottom team. But this would be a close to that, um, I would say, conceding six goals in the way that they did as well. It was just always round from the get-go, um, an incredibly poor performance. And, uh, you know, I, I think some players there have really, really damaged themselves with, uh, with their performance. I mean, you know, this is, this is professional football. You know, you get paid money. Now, you know, we can uh, talk about uh, how much some of them get paid, which is very poorly uh, compensated in the whole schemes of world football. For another day, but the bottom line is, when you are playing in front of eighteen, twenty thousand fans that uh, that pay their hard-earned money to come out and watch, you know, you as an individual have a responsibility there, and you need to take that responsibility very seriously. And it's not to say that um, that some players go out and uh, and intentionally or or don't prepare themselves as well as they should. It's just at, at some point you have to look at the hard facts of it is that at some point you make a decision that some players are not good enough to be there. And it's, it's the harsh reality, you know, and, and a little bit in the media, I, I know I'm very direct and very honest and very straight. And it's not that, you know, it's not so easy to even be like that as a reporter or, as a, uh, or at least I don't find it uh, so easy because you know what you say if other people believe, then it affects that person. But, but at the end of the day, you know, um, there were some performances there that were horrific, I thought, uh, on, a, on a player performance. And that started at the get-go with Danny Gargan with the first goal, unfortunately, because Danny Gargan has got good character. You can see that. But for me, he doesn't meet, uh, meet the, uh, the minimum threshold of how to defend 1v1 and how to and to be to be quite at that level I mean and I know again that's that's harsh and players are sensitive but that's shined through I mean that ball that came across he really didn't know how to defend it but but it was it was poor defending you score goals and if you continually if you don't read that writing as a coach and you continually play those players I mean and and 
you know, Steve, I think the listeners and, and you will will know that I'm all for character and all for the right attitude and all for playing those players, absolutely, definitely. And it, it, uh, it, it shouldn't be trumped in many areas, but there has to be a minimum of, of, uh, of ability, technical, tactical ability, to play at each level that you play at, whether it's in college or whether it's, uh, whether it's in professional, whether it's for the national team program. And I think that shined through in a number of areas uh, yesterday. You know, I mean, people are having to go at, uh, you know, at Ty Harden, and, and um, I, I thought he's, he's a little bit uh, unfortunate in, uh, in, in some ways because he, you know, a, again, Aaron Vinter after the game turns around and says about uh, that he saw Harden play in the game. Or, or, or sorry, saw him in training, and that's what uh, why he made that decision to play him. And I can see that. But at the end of the day, you know, it's the it's it's about with Ty Harden and uh, Danny Gargan. But when you play out to the back in the way that, uh, that Aaron Vinter wants them to play, you're in big trouble. Philadelphia Union absolutely had a game plan to come in against uh, Toronto FC, and they exposed them. They went after Ty Harden when he was on the board. They went after uh, Danny Gargan. They high-pressed all over the park right from the get-go. And then Julian de Guzman, unfortunately, was nowhere to be seen. So if you want to play total football and play out of the back in the way it's been preached, there you have it right there. And people talk about direct, and they talk about Precky last, last year playing direct. Uh, Precky didn't. Uh, emphasized that he wanted the team to play direct. He always emphasized in the media conferences that we need to be better on the ball and we need to build up play. But people, you know, used that against him as a stick. But what he was doing there was absolutely the right things. He was going direct because he realized at certain moments, at certain moments in last season, he recognized that if we keep playing with these players out of the back, we're going to concede goals. And that's, I, I believe, somewhere along the line, I've said it in earlier podcasts, at some point, Toronto FC, if they play the way that, uh, that Aaron Vinter has preached, and that's the problem within modern-day football, coming out and saying we're going to play total football, 4-3-3, you give all the opposition uh, all the information that they need. Then you show them the players that are not comfortable on the ball. It's absolutely a bl- blueprint that Philadelphia Union gave them, gave the rest of the league yesterday. This is how you uh, stop Toronto FC playing. This is how you play against them. And this is the problem for Aaron Vinter. You know, because... Uh, because Dutch coaches and Dutch players. I mean, there's a there's a history of uh, of uh, Dutch football. They're fantastic footballers. They got great uh, upbringing in the game. But there's an arrogance about how they go about their business and they don't change. Well, if if Aaron Vinter doesn't change uh, either the personnel or make a little bit of adjustments that they need to at times go direct, they're in big trouble. So it was that, and it was poor performances. From uh, he had it right at half time with De Guzman and uh, Danny Gargan bringing them out. They were totally ineffective. He made the right changes, in my opinion. But it is also it's a combination. They've got some players there that just don't belong, and it's uh, their, their methodology of how they go about uh, playing. On a previous podcast, I asked you what the biggest holes in the TFC lineup were, and you stated that you believed the team needed talented, pedigreed leaders in the midfield and at centre back. At the press conference after the match, Aaron Venter was asked which types of players he would be looking to acquire in the summer transfer window, and he stated that he'd be looking for leaders who could organize and lead the team in the midfield and in central defense. What did you make of Winter's comments after the match? Hmm. Well, I thought he's probably been listening to the podcast. 
But um, so all joking aside, there, Steve. It's uh, I, I, I think that again, you asked me last week about um, Aaron Binter, and, and again I repeat it. I actually like Aaron Binter because I see that he's a competitive guy. You don't play for Holland uh, eighty odd times, and I, and I know I'm repeating what I said last week, and not and not be competitive. So he's really competitive. And he really gets it. Like, he's a cultured soccer person. Let's not get away from that. But he's dealing with a different animal coming into the North American landscape, and particularly in, in, in Canada. And so he really doesn't know, when he came in, all the nuances of players, of staffing around him, of the club, of how it works, the media, the fans. He doesn't really know that. And so he's really in the fire. He's been thrown in the fire. And he's beginning to discover. I and mean, he really can see what the problems are so it's not about uh, um, me knowing these things it's about I have experience in the game like lots of other people out there do and if you've been a coach you see it it's glaring and you have to have that part of your your team you have to have it right you have to have goalkeeper you have to have your center backs and you have to have your central midfield has to be you know terrific you you know good target player up front will finish that off but that's just fine and, you know, for me, Toronto FC, you know, in the first years, were always, always teetering on not, on, on not quite getting there. You know, they, they, they looked like they were getting there in the first few years, but now it's, um, you know, they look like they're in a, in a mess in those positions. So it's no surprise that Aaron Binter would, would say that because he's a smart coach. He, uh, he sees it, he gets it, and particularly of where it's relevant is where, is where, again, we talk about the way that they want to play. If they want to play out of the back, if you don't have a midfield player that, is, uh, that can dominate and dictate the game you know, in that area, and Julian de Guzman, again, don't want to keep uh, mentioning that, but he was not to be seen yesterday. And you have to show for the ball, you know, to be fair to Ty Hardenham. And he was looking, he was desperate, because he knows he doesn't want to play it forward, he doesn't want to play it long, because that's not the way we're supposed to be playing. So he's looking for help in the midfield. You know, and um, those, are two, those are the two areas that uh, I can see with, uh, with Aaron Binter. He was shell-shocked, by the way, um, yesterday. And, um, and uh, you know, I sort of feel for him. He's, um, he's scattered in his mind. I bet that wasn't a good sleep he had last night. With another embarrassing loss by TFC at BMO Field, discussion among supporters has once again centered on possibly cancelling season's tickets and disillusionment with the club. You made an appearance on the first episode of the CBC Soccer Nation podcast with Pedro Mendes recently and discussed whether Toronto C and the MLS in Toronto could ever go the way of the NASL and, God forbid, shut down. You unequivocally stated that you did not think that was possible and that First Division professional soccer was here to stay. The format of the Soccer Nation pod was based on quick, concise sound bites, and I'm wondering if you'd be able to expand on why you feel so strongly that top-flight professional soccer is here to stay in Toronto. Yes, it uh, sure is here to stay, in my opinion, and I don't think it's um, anything too intellectual that I'm making that observation. I think many people would. Um, but specifically, if you look at the old NESL, we are certainly a generation away from that. And with the globalization of the game, with technology, with social media, soccer and football, whatever you want to call it, is in your face 24-7, 365. And, you know, I think one of the biggest things about the MLS with coming into to Canada and into Toronto and into Vancouver is really about, uh, about the timing. And it was about the domestic fan bases that was that existed there there was an insatiable appetite for this kind of level of professional game to come in and it's because 
we all want to be, we all want to support a local team. You know, we, we are Juventus supporters, Liverpool supporters, Man United, Barcelona, uh, Barcelona supporters. And as a result, we, we watch on TV all the time, but there's something in us as soccer supporters that want to deal with domestic. We want to get on that global roundabout of supporting our own local city. And I think that's the biggest, uh, the biggest difference. It, it really is here to stay. MLSC, as we've talked about, they have many, many flaws, clearly, as far as putting uh, technical sport franchises together. But on a business level, they don't make too many mistakes, and, um, and they, they haven't with this, uh, with this particular franchise. It, uh, in my opinion, will be here in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. So that's that first issue. Uh, the second one that you allude to there is the, uh, the uh, supporters groups and giving in uh, season tickets, getting unhappy when they uh, look to increase the prices. Tom and Sammy comes out a year ago and apologizes cause, because they uh, increased the prices. You know, so I understand that, but uh, you know, I think it's very clear what's happening there is that it really is about frustration. I think if, if Toronto FC wasn't to exist tomorrow, those same supporters would be disappointed, as would I, as would you, and as would thousands and thousands of uh, Canadian soccer supporters around the country. So, you know, it really is about frustration, though, and when Tom and Sami comes out and apologizes for that, you know, it's, it's uh, a little bit weak, in my opinion, because at, at the end of the day, for top teams in top cities around the world, Liverpool, Barcelona, um, you know, Real Madrid, Manchester United, the top teams, Bayern Munich, they, you know, it's an elastic thing with the pricing of things, the elasticity. And really, for your top teams, there really is the inelastic uh, aspect of pricing, meaning that no matter what you raise the prices to, you know, your, your, your supporters are still going to turn up because they love the game that much, they love their team uh, that much. Now, obviously, that's an exaggeration that clearly is, uh, is the price point you can't go over. But, um, but it, is, it is relatively, in soccer terms, that's the beauty of football, is that it is inelastic when you increase that. So if, if it's really not about pricing, what is it about? And I think if Tom and Samu and, and Toronto FC would have uh, increased the prices a year ago in the way that they did, but Toronto FC was a championship contending team, there would be no issue. And so the issue really is about uh, about the supporters group is that they are they are unhappy and they are a little bit fed up they are frustrated and in some areas they're angry at the fact that they recognize that Toronto should be a linchpin of this league and after 5 years we look like a first year franchise and we still don't know where we're going it looks um, it looks poor and it's not a reflection so much right now on on Aaron Vinter and Bob de Klerk. And I know I'm, uh, it seems like I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, go- I'm sticking up for them um, over the last few podcasts. But, you know, there comes a time where you have to just say, look, you, you just have to give somebody the chance and the patience to do the thing uh, properly. And, and it's my read that they are uh, doing the right things and looking to do the right things. But, um, and so hopefully that stays. The bottom line is, is that MLSC of, um, on a management level have been very poor. They need to get things sorted out at, at many levels. That's for another podcast. But I think that's where the frustration comes from with, uh, with the fans. It's sort of a smokescreen, the pricing and saying we're going to stay away. They don't want to stay away. They probably would pay um, an extra uh, little bit of money for tickets if they had a quality product on the field. And that's where MLSE are dealing with a different animal than the hockey team here 
is that uh, is that people that you know it seems like they're, they're teetering on a revolution. Um, I don't think it's going to come to that, but the warning signs are there for uh, for MLSC to uh, get themselves sorted out. It would help if somebody was to actually take responsibility, but nobody does. Nobody. Uh, Tom and Sami, in my opinion, is responsible for uh, the the performances ultimately over five years of, uh, of Toronto FC and the decisions that he's made. That's the bottom line. When talking about fan support for Canadian soccer teams, an equally timely topic is our national teams. The Canadian men's national team will face off against Ecuador in a friendly at BMO Field on Wednesday, June 1st. I'll be there, and I'm wondering if we could get your thoughts on why you think it is important that anyone who wants to see soccer continue to grow in Canada should get out and attend that game. Well, I think it's a good question. It, it, and to me, it ties in a little bit with, um, with players that are born in Canada, Owen Hargreaves, uh, Jonathan de Guzman, uh, that end up going to play for other teams around the world. And too many people, uh, and it might not be the, the, uh, the avid soccer fan that generally is against those decisions, but uh, a lot of uh, maybe mainstream uh, supporters will will uh, sporting supporters will just justify it and say it's okay. Well, it's not okay because similar to when you have uh, um, full gates at Vancouver for Vancouver Whitecaps games and Toronto FC can uh, pack it out for their home games. Montreal the same thing, and then our national team program uh, it gets a half uh, empty stadium. It's about identity. It's about the Canadian identity, and, and it was like that back in, believe it or not, back in the early 80s, and it's hard to believe that what we just discussed about why professional soccer is going to stay here, because we're a generation on, but we're a generation on, and we still haven't solved that problem, although I'm very hopeful. I, I think maybe, we, maybe we're, on, we're on the verge of solving that problem, where, where supporters do start to take tremendous pride in the fact that uh, whichever way we look at it, it is it is our country, the uh, the and how we perform in the future is really contingent on what our national team programs do and how they perform on the field. They can they can assist so much as far as the development of the game goes in in Canada with good performances, with qualifying for World Cups. But along the way, we need to show that we care. And that we care because it's Canada, it's our, our country. Why should every other country around the world get uh, you know, packed out stadiums and uh, cheering fans with such great pride and great atmospheres? And in Canada, it's been lacking. So, and even in exhibition games, there's no excuse. There's no, there's no reason. You know, we spend uh, you know, half, our, half the year in winters bedded down, bedded at home with, uh, with not the ability to go out and watch. Now we do in the summer months. We should go out and we should support them. And, uh, and Canadian players in particular, as we've touched on before, do sacrifice a lot. I mean, the ones that do play for our country, uh, irrespective of the off-field uh, antics of some of the characters and some of the attitudes, the reality is, is they put on a Canadian shirt and they do wear it with pride. And I think that's something that we should uh, value and we should support. And just to finish off, I should say this, is that really we, we've got to hope that the supporter groups you know, the youth sectors, the ultras in the different locations, Southsiders, uh, you know, the Red Patch Boys, is that they can somehow collectively get together. And I know that they are, they are doing that. But, uh, you know, I think they can play a huge part, um, as well as the Kerfoots, the Bob Lenarduzis, the, 
um, and MLSC and Joey Saputo. I mean, they need to support um, support all national team programs and games. Once again, let's end off this episode of the Paul James on Soccer podcast by having you respond to a couple of questions submitted from listeners. Lyle sent in, Interesting comments concerning the TFC Academy from both Paul and Carmen on the soccer show. It really is a shame to see Alleman leave TFC. Paul, you've mentioned that you think TFC should hire Carmen and another coach who I believe is an assistant with the U17 Canadian national team. Another option would be to supplement the current staff with someone from Europe, and I'm curious what you think of that idea. Also, what are your thoughts on former Caps Academy leader Thomas Niendorf? TFC could really get some revenge for Alderson and Tiber by hiring him. Uh, interesting. I think, uh, well, there's a, there's a few questions there. First of all, I think with Carmen, it's, um, you know, personally, I would, uh, I would um, hire Carmen. But, uh, you know, I think my point with Carmen is, is that, you, you know, you can hire, Toronto FC has the ability to hire somebody of Carmen's ilk meaning that um, Carmen has proven successful at a significant level, um, you know, many times over. And, uh, you know, because I know him from a, a day-to-day perspective as an excellent coach, and I think there are a number out there. Patrick Tobo is the, uh, the other person he's referring to who, uh, you know, is an outstanding coach. Now, you know, it just might not fit in for Patrick Tobo or for Carmen, but it is, it is about that. It is about having experience. You cannot put a price. If there's one thing you can't put a price on when it comes to coaching is experience and experience it at varying different levels. And uh, it, it isn't all about coaching at, um, at the Ontario Provincial Team, which Patrick Tobo, you know, maybe has, but, um, but there's the experience that he's had from playing in the World Cup. And there is, and you recognize that um, from the outside when I observe and see Patrick Tobo. There's the professionalism that's unbelievable, you know, in, in his approach in terms of developing players. And I think that that's the kind of quality, minimum quality, that should have in academies, you know. Otherwise, if you're grooming your coaches along the way, to um, as well as your players, that there is that feel, you know, that um, that instinct, that smell that you have. You can't put, you know, it's the X factor that you can't quite uh, figure out. Why do players leave your academies? Like, why don't aren't they there? It's generally because if you had the right personnel at the top in the academy director, get the right people there, those things don't happen. And I think that was uh, much more specifically um, my point. You're going to have to uh, poke me a little bit here, Steve, on the second and third part of that question. Yeah, Lyle also asked about possibly bringing in some coaches from Europe for the academy. And I also um, was wondering about Thomas Niendorf, who was the former um, Vancouver Whitecaps academy leader. Okay, and I think that second part is, is, a, is a great question. I think it's going to, um, and it's a great point. And, and my answer, short answer to that is absolutely yes. And I think this, it, it goes back to when you talk about Toronto FC and how, um, how, uh, how poorly they're performing on, on, on the, the field. And it sort of ripples through the whole organization. I think that um, you know, Bob McCowan would know and would have opinions on how MLSE are run and how they run their business. But, you know, and I, and I would agree with a lot of what he says. And so when I can see from a soccer perspective, and this is what MLSE have, they have a monopoly on uh, positions and jobs that pe- for people that want to get involved in the sport and industry. And as a result of that, they know it and they can keep the prices. They can keep uh, what they pay the compensation that they shell out on a lot of the people that they hire, they can keep it very low. 
and it's and it's okay. It's part of their business model, I suppose. It's okay if that's what you you're interested in is to is to to make the profit, and that's the bottom line, you know. But it's short sighted because they could still they would make you know ten times over. I know that's an exaggeration, maybe, but but they could make many times over the uh, the, the the profit if they were to hire the right people, and they don't make the cost of that an impediment. And you've just got to look at Vancouver and how much they invested in their academy program before they were even in the MLS with really pretty much a sole proprietor at the beginning with uh, with Greg uh, Kerfoot. And, and your MLSC don't see that and don't do that because they still keep looking at the bottom line all the time. And so what they do is, part of their model is to, nobody can criticize the program, nobody can criticize this. We'll have people that all say yes, and we will pay them not very much money because it's, it's all about the bottom line and the profit. But it's so short-sighted because if you were to go out, if you can't find the right talented people for what is a pivotal part of your future, which is the academy, then go out in Europe and recruit and recruit. Go to Barcelona and recruit some of their some of their coaches or Spain or to Argentina and recruit and pay what you need to pay because ultimately that will dictate your future. But they don't do it and they don't see it and that is a problem. So that's a great little uh, question um, that the, uh, uh, the person sent in there, Lyle, I believe. Uh, the, uh, the final one was on uh, um, Thomas Neendorf. I've uh, met Thomas Neendorf once. I was uh, quite impressed with him. The uh, question marks for me I would have uh, on, on Thomas Neendorf would be uh, the fact that he was released um, from Vancouver and why he was released from Vancouver. I, um, I have second-hand information. I'm not going to be, um, uh, be letting that known. But, um, y- you know, I think there, there would be question marks um, for me on, uh, on Thomas Neendorf. But um, you know, I think somewhere along those uh, along those lines, somebody like him with the uh, with the background would um, would be along the right lines. I I believe it doesn't matter where the people come from and where you have to go. You know, if you if they have to go to Mars to find the right person and pay them the right money to get the job done, then at, at the uh, academy level they should do it. Magpie wrote Paul. Stephen Hart looks like he has some options in the midfield with DeGuzman, Hutchinson, Johnson, Pedro Pacheco, and Terry Dunfield. Hart's favored midfield has usually been Julian, Hutch, and Patrice Bernier, who is currently injured. I'm wondering who you think the starter should be for the Gold Cup, and how much do you think Canada will miss Bernier? Uh, well, but the last party question, they will miss him for sure. He was really, uh, you know, almost at his peak of his career. I would say uh, Patrice Bernier, and um, he's so fit and so athletic that um, you know he's going to be around for uh, for a few more years yet. It's so it's it's so disappointing that he got uh, you know the injury did breaking his leg. That's um, you know that's an absolute nightmare. And the timing is is never right, but it couldn't have been worse for Stephen Hart, I'm sure. I'm not so sure that uh, that uh, with the um, with the email there that's quite correct. I would actually say probably your best midfield. Uh, would be Patrice Bernier, uh, either Terry Dunfield or Will Johnson. So probably Will Johnson. I would go go Will Johnson, Patrice Bernier, uh, and Atiba Hutchinson. Now that Bernier is out, it's going to be uh, I would imagine Terry Dunfield. If you go on performances with Julian and uh, and Terry on domestic uh, uh, league, then um, you'd have to go with Terry right now. He's been consistent. He's uh, performed well. He's uh, scored a, a goal. I think uh, maybe one or two goals. Um, and 
you know, looks the part. You know, he's box to box. He always threatens and gets in. Julian has struggled for whatever reason. He needs to solve that. Who knows? This might be a, a breath of fresh air for him to uh, get into a different environment. But, um, you know, the excuses can only go so far. That would be my 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 selection. Uh, the Pacheco, I, to be fair, I don't know him quite as well, but uh, but uh, he's decent. He will be in the mix. I would imagine um, that... Um, the combination anyway is going to happen because over the uh, the three games they're going to need to uh, utilize uh, each of those players. If you have questions that you'd like Paul to address, please send your email to pauljames at rednationonline.ca.